singularity. My name is Nicola, aka Socrates, and you're watching Singularity One on One. Singularity One on One is a regular podcast feature of Singularity Weblog, where you can go and listen to it or download it in full. If you guys enjoy the show, you can help me make it better in several ways. You can simply go and write a review on iTunes. You can leave a comment on the blog or on YouTube, or you can just go and make a donation. Today, my guest on the show is Professor James D. Miller. Um, James D. Miller is uh, not only an associate professor of economics at Smith College, but he's also he was also a speaker at the 2008 Singularity Summit. And by the way, uh, it was one of the funniest and most entertaining, most informative sessions of the whole summit, in my view. So I recommend anyone to go and watch it. Um, and he's also most recently the author of a very interesting new book on the singularity called Singularity Rising. Now, I've been reading this book, uh, actually I finished it about three weeks ago, um, and so um, I wanted to invite uh, James D. Miller to talk about his work today on the show. So, James, thanks for coming on the show. Well, thank you for having me on the show, Nick. Fantastic. So, let's start our interview a little bit further back in time, uh, because I want to get to find out not only uh, uh, what people do, but why they get to do it. So let me ask you this, why economics, and how did you end up being a professor in economics? Sure. Well, I started, I wanted to be a theoretical physicist, and I went to college with that intention, and I did well in physics, but I kind of realized that math was too much for me, that I could get A's, but I had to work really hard, and this just it wasn't for me. So I think like a lot of people end up being econ economists. I sort of went down where economics uses math, but you don't need to be quite as good at it. And so I sort of ended up, I took microeconomics and I loved it. And I realized it was sort of the right level for me. And I just um, pursued that. That's, that's very interesting. And then, okay, so you had love for physics. You weren't as brilliant in mathematics as you'd wanted to be. So you decided to do economics. But then, why the jump from economics into technology in general, and especially the singularity in particular? Uh, sure. I, I really didn't intend on studying the singularity or even technology when I, I got my degree in economics, but I just, I don't know, I just sort of, when I started thinking about the singularity and thinking about what would happen if we had smarter people, that this would just radically transform everything. And this was the key issue of our time, and, but almost no one was studying it. So I just started reading about the singularity and thinking about what would happen. I decided this is what I, I have to write on. This is what I you know, care the most about right now. Mm -hmm. And That's virtually no one else, no other economist is interested in issues of intelligence enhancement. Yeah, that's very interesting. I mean, the only other economist or uh, academic that I know of is uh, my previous, one of my previous guests on the show, Professor Robin Hansen. Um, uh, but do you think that there is kind of a... I don't know, sus not suspicion is not the right word, but academia generally looks down on the technological singularity as sort of a fringe, non-academic issue, perhaps? Oh, yeah, absolutely. In fact, I've gotten a bit of trouble with that at my college. I have tenure, so they can't get rid of me, but my department doesn't think what I'm doing is serious economics. They don't object to, like, you know, they're not saying this is particularly wrong, but they think that I should be doing more traditional work. Mm -hmm. so, I, 
it's hurting me a little bit in my career. But. I have to say that as someone who spent about eight years in academia myself, I found the same attitude in the Department of Political Science as well as in the Department of Philosophy myself. Uh, and, and those are a lot more flexible usually than the Department of Economics, I would say. So I'm not surprised from what you're telling me. Why do you think that's the case, though? Well, I, I'm not sure. I mean, part of it, it is harder for them to judge. If you're doing traditional work, then there's, you know, given metrics and they can see, you know, if you're successful or not. Otherwise, I don't, I mean, it, I don't know, it's, just, it's a lot different from what other people are doing. And uh, there's a suspicion that I'm just kind of writing science fiction novels but putting in some technology. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I mean, it also, I think, you know, the singularity does strike most people as being absurd. <laughs> and I, I don't think, I mean, superficially it is. And so, you know, you're sort of, when someone finds out what you're doing, you explain it to them for five minutes. It's sort of like, well, you're writing about what happens if we have magic fairies that come and take over the world. Mm-hmm. And so it's hard to get people to spend the time to look at it enough to think it's worth, you know, it's worthwhile. And I'll say, I mean, the argument that really convinces me is even if there's like a 1% chance this stuff is right, it's worth a lot of people putting a lot of effort into studying it. Because but most people don't buy that, you know, they're not willing to sort of accept that kind of Pascal mugging kind of approach. Mm-hmm. Because even though it arguably might be a low probability, the impact would be fundamentally radical. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's worth a lot of academics putting a lot of time into it. And since almost no one does, I think it's an effective social use of my time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I absolutely agree with you, and, and I very much applaud you for doing so, despite the friction that it, it is creating. Right. Well, I do have tenure, so I'm, I'm quite safe, and no one should feel sorry for me or anything. Yeah, yeah. Thank God for tenure. I'm, yes. I'm all for it. I mean, there's, there's huge benefits to, to tenure. Yeah. Um, so... Okay, so let's uh, get a little bit deeper uh, into the meat of the matter. If, 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 if you can perhaps tell us what, in your view, is the definition of the singularity? Because, you know, I've had a, a number of people on my show, and it seems everyone has a little bit different take on it overall. Yeah. Um, I define a singularity as a threshold of time in which either significantly smarter people or machine superintelligences radically transform civilization. Mm-hmm. So either we have very smart people or very smart machines, and they're doing a tremendous amount. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. So then perhaps you can tell us what the Singularity Rising book is all about then. Uh, sure. The, the central thesis of the book is that there are lots of different ways we can have enhanced human intelligence or very smart machine intelligence, and there's tremendous military and economic benefits to doing so. And so we're, we're almost certainly going to have this if we don't destroy ourselves, even if it's going to turn out very badly. So what I try to do in the book is I don't take a position, I don't say we're going to get emulations or a Kurzweilian merger necessarily, mm-hmm. or a, an intelligence explosion. These are all possibilities. They're all reasonable. Yeah. But we're probably there's, there's so many different approaches there's such tremendous benefit to doing it, and we can get one without the other. There's not like there's one technology that we need, and if we don't get it, we won't get anything. That, you know, a brighter future, a future with smarter beings is sort of it's what we're headed for unless something very bad happens to our civilization. Mm-hmm. So in the book, I try to outline maybe some of the consequences under different paths, but also what are the incentives to achieve these things. Yeah, I have to say one of the things that I really enjoyed about your book is that 
as you just said, you are laying out all the possibilities out there uh, without necessarily committing to any single one, but with the sort of reasoning that any one of them has the potential of happening. Yeah. And, and it's really hard to weigh which one is the most likeliest. I mean, we can certainly um, guess which one would be, but there is no exact measurement. No, and there's so many smart people studying the singularity, and they differ over which is more likely to happen. And Absolutely. when writing the book, I realized, God, like people like Robin Hanson is so much smarter than I am, and he thinks this, but Eliezer Yukowski thinks this, and he's also smarter than I am, so how am I supposed to decide who is right? So I didn't try. I just said they both have... They both lay out possible futures. And yeah, I, I like that approach. That's very much the Socratic approach. I know that I don't know. So uh, I think it's a very good starting point. And, and, and the reason is that unless we realize, I think, our own ignorance, then we cannot start building up real knowledge. And, yeah. and perhaps that's one of the reasons that I really enjoyed your book. Oh, thank you. Uh, but... One thing that I didn't enjoy so much is that the, the print is such a small print and some of the pages are so dense with a small print that it's, it, it was kind of a little hard for me and exhausting on my eyes to, to read it. So I, I usually would go through a book like that in a couple of days, but this took me almost a week to get through. Okay. I'll, I'll tell my publisher if there's another printing. I'll, I'll point out that. <laughs> Just I'll maybe see. a little bit bigger font. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Easier on the eyes. Maybe, I don't know, I'm, I'm used to reading online so much nowadays that, and you know, online the paragraphing is much different. People yeah. make big gaps. Uh, so just as a, as a side suggestion. Okay, thanks. But going back on topic. So you mentioned that, uh, you know, uh, the military, uh, what, you, what in the book you call the military race, uh, but also, uh, that reminds me, during the Singularity Summit, you were making an argument as to why we should be investing in defense contractors and general safety technologies. Mm -hmm. Would you lead us through that argument for a second? Give us sure. a little tip on investing on our... Okay, <laughs> sure. Uh, well, the premise there is that in some point in the near future, it's going to become apparent that we're going to be able to live a very long time that maybe we have a chance of, of living forever. It's certainly we're not there now, but maybe in, you know, 15 years, there'll be scientists will be able to keep mice alive indefinitely in reverse aging. And a lot of people will say, hey, wait a minute, I, I'm not going to die when I'm 80. I could live really, re a really long life. Mm -hmm. And suddenly when you have the prospect of living a long time, I, I think the cost of death goes way up to you. And you're really going to, you know, you're really going to care more about your government protecting you from crime or from other governments. And so I think that people who can provide safety technologies, they're going to do fairly well. We're also going to you know, be more afraid of other countries attacking us. I mean, if the, if the benefits of our life go up, then the cost of dying goes up as well. So do you think then in that case that people will become so risk-averse that nobody would want to volunteer to be, for example, a soldier, a policeman, or a firefighter? Because, you know, if you die, you're dead forever. Uh, but not, not no one, but I, I think fewer people will, and I think the risk premium will go up. Mm -hmm. Right now when economists look at wages in different professions, we see that, it, you know, all else equal, a greater risk of death in a profession means people get paid more. Mm -hmm. And I think that's going to increase, which will, of course, create incentives for companies to create robots that can act in dangerous jobs, can act as firemen or, you know, work agricultural equipment where there's a lot of danger. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's, there's definite role for that kind of technology. I see. And, and then... 
what are what would be the sort of general economic implications let's say regardless of which way we get to the singularity i mean okay maybe we should stop there does it matter which of the ways that you uh, sort of describe in the book is the way that we end up taking towards the singularity yeah it, it's going to matter a lot the big way is savings let's imagine you've got a 30 year old who's thinking of saving for retirement that 30 year old thing gee i I'm saving money, so maybe in 40 years I'll have a better life. Well, what if you expect between now and 40 years there's probably going to be a singularity? By some pass, if there's an intelligence explosion, probably your savings won't have any value because either the AI won't be friendly and it'll kill you, and you know, so what if you save money, or it'll bring some kind of weird utopia where money doesn't have value. Mm -hmm. So under the this is sort of the Singularity Institute view, I don't think there's a value of saving. Under Robin Hansen's view, where we have an emulation economy, uh, he sees that interest rates will go up, so actually there's a greater value of savings because there'll be um, companies will be able to make tremendous investments, and also you won't be able to earn money off of off of working because there'll be these cheap emulations that'll compete with you. Mm-hmm. So if we get a Hansen's view of a singularity, you want to save a lot. You get sort of the Singularity Institute's view, you don't want to save. Um, Ray Kurzweil's view is sort of in between, where he, his view is where you merge with machines. And there we're all probably going to be able to earn a lot of money. So it would be okay to have savings, but it wouldn't be that bad to reach the age of 70 and not have any savings if we have a Kurzweilian merger and we're super intelligent and healthy. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, how much, you know, and once, and unfortunately, if, let's imagine a lot of people expect there to be a singularity where having saved money won't help. Unfortunately, if everyone saves less, there's less investment, which actually could postpone the singularity. So expecting a singularity could cause a delay in the singularity because people decide not to save very much money. Mm-hmm. There's less investment, so it, you can get sort of weird. I see. But then on the other hand, you need to have a certain degree of consumption in order to uh, pay for all that technology too, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, you do need some consumption. But if everyone thought, gee, in 40 years, I'll either be dead or I'll live in a society where money has no value, mm-hmm. a lot of people would save less. And I think we'd go, we'd go to the point where consumption would be too high from the view of maximizing innovation. Mm-hmm. We'd get less innovation than we do now. I see. You, you've mentioned there Professor Robin Hanson. And one of the differences in, between your book and his book draft was that he foresees increasing uh, – huge rise between in social disparities and inequality, whereas in your book, you're actually seeing inequality falling. Yeah. Um, How think, is that possible, and if you accept his argument, and where are the differences? Well, I think if Robin is right about there being emulations, and that's the, the dominant form of intelligence enhancements, then, then he, he is right. That what will happen is, you know, there'll be a the people who aren't emulations won't be able to earn money off of their wages. Mm-hmm. And so all the income will come through either government transfers mm-hmm. or through their investment in the stock market. But I'm not certain, Robin, but I think we also, if the way we approach a singularity is that we get smarter people, and let's say we have Ray Kurzweil's approach where we merge with machines, I think we're likely to have technologies that have low marginal cost, where it might cost, you know, you know, $50 billion to develop a brain implant, and at first only really rich people will have it, 
but most of that cost will be the research and development and the safety test. And then once we have it, it'll be relatively cheap mm-hmm. and most middle-class Americans will be able to afford it. And then eventually we'll get to the point where someone like Bill Gates could pay for a billion poor people to have it too. Mm-hmm. So it'll sort of, I think the technologies are likely to follow the path of cell phones yeah. where there are peasants in Bangladesh who have cell phones and they don't even have them through charity. They have them because it's, they can afford it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also think through other intelligence enhancement technologies, we're likely to have the U.S. government provide them for free to poor Americans because I think um, liberals will want that for you know, the quality of outcome, but conservatives will too because there's a lot of social pathologies that go along with not being very bright. And there'll be a lot of conservatives who say, I'm willing to spend the $20,000 to give this kid this intelligence enhancement technology because he'll be less likely to mug me or be on welfare. Mm-hmm. So I think there'll be a broad American coalition. And we look at, I mean, our government spends tremendous amount on education for poor people. Yeah. And so if there's proof that these technologies would work. So I also, if you look at um, eugenics technologies, which I think there's a decent chance it, it might turn out that it, it becomes possible to for, for parents to create kids that are going to have much higher IQs than anyone does now. Mm-hmm. At first, it will only be the rich who do that. But I think very quickly... Our government would subsidize that technology for everyone for the same reason that liberals would want a quality of outcome and conservatives are going to want poorer people who are smarter. So I think, I think eventually for that kind of technologies, we will have more quality, mm-hmm. at least in the United States. Now, internationally, it's, it's tougher to say. Mm-hmm. So, so just to, to clarify, to make sure I understand, you think that Robin Hansen's argument is a valid argument, but it's not necessarily a sound one because if his premise is not correct, then his argument would fall apart. But if, think, if his premise is correct, then it's, it will be valid. Um, I think Hansen's laid out a very realistic path. I think he puts a greater probability on that path occurring than I would. Mm-hmm. I think his path, there's enough likelihood that his work is very important and, and should be read by anyone interested in the future. But I, I think there's a very good chance we'll have an intelligence explosion before we have an emulation economy, like he suggested. Mm-hmm. Do you think there might be a libertarian bias in that argument, in Hansen's argument, or is it just me misperceiving it? Um, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I am somewhat of a libertarian myself, so I might be answering this with, with, with my own bias. That's okay. But I think if Robin's scenario comes to pass, I think there's going to be powerful forces that push us to libertarianism. I mean, you get libertarianism if you have a lot of rich people who can easily escape the political jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. So the thing about emulations is an emulation city could just move. So let's imagine we have an emulation city in the United States and our government says, oh, wait, no, you guys, we got you got to pay a lot of taxes or we're going to put all these regulations on you. I think that the emulations or the rich ones will say, fine, we're just going to move offshore or we'll go to Singapore. So I think if we get, if the assumptions behind Hansen's model hold out, that it's really going to constrain what governments do, at least absent war. And Hansen doesn't really look at the war situation. He assumes we kind of have a peaceful world. So mm-hmm. I, I think that, I think it's, given his technological assumptions, his sort of libertarian bias is justified. Yeah, I personally think that even if his assumptions are correct, there would be a lot of resistance to it. There would, but and, I, I don't... I don't think it will be a straightforward, peaceful transition. I think there will be a, there might be a, a revolution, actually. Uh, 
Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I, I don't think revol- an internal revolution could do it because the emulations could just leave. I think there would have to be, you know, global powers saying, even if you go offshore emulations, we'll track you down and force you to pay taxes or force this on you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you the difference here, though, uh, with respect to uh, technological unemployment. How do you see that will play out? Because one of the things that, the things that bugged me about Robin's argument is that people who are, you know, not, re- who are basically relying on their wages to survive today, which is the vast majority of the population of the earth, would sort of be at the edge of survival, physically speaking, and, and most likely would be sort of pushed very much to become emulations, because that might be the cheapest way for them to survive, or perhaps even the only way for them to survive. Um, I think that's the path we're likely to go on unless we come up with ways of enhancing human intelligence. That it just, I, I think that because of what machines can do, the, the value of being able, of being strong and hardworking is, is going to go down and down. And I think, especially in the United States, we're going to reach a point where most Americans won't be able to earn enough working throughout their lives to, to even pay for their health care and for their basic needs, and we're just going to have the government transferring more and more resources. The way around this would be if, if we get some way of making people smarter. And I think a lot of this is due to automation. It's also due to the international nature of our economy. I mean, if, if America says we're, you know, we're going to put an effective base on the minimal standard of living that's above what the average person in India or China can make, but then you have an international trade system where it's easy to ship goods, you've got very cheap manufacturing technologies, I just think, you know, someone with an IQ of 100, you know, even in 15 years from now, who's, you know, average work ethic isn't going to be able to earn enough. And eventually they're going to be subsidized more and more. And I, I, actually, I think we should be honest about that and admit, let's just maybe have a system where we have sort of an honorable unemployment. For honorable unemployment. What is that? Yeah, honorable long-term. Let's say, again, we have somebody who, you know, just by the time they're 16, we know they're never going to be smart enough to be able to earn more than it costs to maintain them. And we say, look, you know, stay, don't commit crimes, you know, lead a decent life. And, and we'll pay for you? We'll pay for you, and we'll do it in a way where you should, you know, preserve your self-respect. It's not that you're lazy. It's just that we happen to live in a world right now where even if you're very strong and hardworking, you're not going to earn enough to pay for your health care. And so be a good citizen, and we'll, we'll pay for you. And you'll have a, have a nice life. That's funny, though, because you're a- – a libertarian too, and, and yeah. that sounds like a welfare state arrangement I, I to me. Other people have pointed this out to me. It is kind of ironic, but this sort of technology might lead to a welfare state where we get smarter and smarter robots. Would that be that utopia that you're referring to? That basically you don't have to work; all your needs are taken care of. Uh, yeah, I mean the point of an economy is it's consumption. It's not it's not work. I mean we work to get stuff to consume. Mm-hmm. And if we can all live in a world where work is optional and you still can have a nice life, that is sort of a, you know, it's not utopia, but it's pretty good. Okay, so let's go back and let's figure out where's the critical junction which would determine which way things would go, whether the Robin Hanson way or this way of the utopian welfare state. How do we know which path are we along? Well, I don't think Hanson's path is, is inconsistent with the utopian welfare state. As you think, because under Hansen's path, you would make very little through wages, but I still think there could be a lot of government transfers. 
So what I think could happen under a Hansen's path is that we have emulations and some are very rich. And let's say the government extracts 5% of what emulations do in taxes and transfer, you know, waste half of it, but transfers the other half to its citizens. Mm-hmm. There still could be enough wealth there where the average person in that society is much better off than the average American is now or the average unemployed, you know, biohuman. So as long as we can get government transfers, you know, as, as long as that society is rich enough, there still could be enough wealth whereby sort of everyone is, all the biohumans are better off. Now, under Hansen's view, we're still going to have a lot of poor emulations, and there's really no way around that. Mm-hmm. If it's very easy to make a copy of an emulation, then you'll do so if, if one can make a little bit of a surplus. So if it costs a dollar to run an emulation, and you can make a dollar and a penny through running it, then you'll run it, and it'll have very low substance wages. Mm-hmm. So I think there, there is no hope for the emulations, to all be wealthy, that kind of goes, but the biohumans could be because we don't produce we, we don't produce very fast. Yeah, I actually like that idea that the biohumans, and I think that's a big difference actually because for me, one of the other requirements to make this happen is not only the fact that our society has to be rich enough that we can tax and sort of transfer that wealth, but there has to be the political will and the political consensus that there ought to be a more equitable society. Uh, I, I, I want to take issue. I don't, I don't think equity is important. It's more important for the absolute level of the poor. I mean, yeah, I would be quite in happy that sense, you. I mean, yeah, I didn't say it, equity. I, no. I, okay, I agree. Okay. Because if, if we have, you know, hundreds of trillions of emulations yeah, producing... I don't mean communism. I mean, like... Okay, yeah. Yeah. I mean that, you know, you wouldn't be, as Robin put it, at the, at the ev- edge of survival... But in right. fact, you would have that uh, physical survival absolutely guaranteed for you. And what I like also is that you threw in the word honorable, mm-hmm. which means that, you know, it wouldn't be, you, you wouldn't necessarily be looked down. A- and I think that that in turn would create, you know, the possibility of people to spontaneously create intellectually, artistically, and in all kinds of other ways, because they would, I would imagine, you know, uh, many people would end up being creative in, in all kinds of different ways when they're not occupied with work. Oh, no, I, I think you're right. I mean, you'd have people doing things like fantasy football leagues or web comics or, yeah, there would be a lot of, of work people would do that wouldn't, wouldn't be paid for, but they, people would form their own communities that would be enjoyable mm-hmm. or they form clans in World of Warcraft. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, for sure, World of Warcraft, but some others would do art, yeah. Uh, painting, photography, you name computer, virtual worlds, anything. They'll write books, they'll make movies, anything which, you know, they can't do now because they're working and they're wor- worried about daily survival. Yeah, yeah, I think that would be a great world if, if you know, that and I, that can't happen for the, for the emulations because there'll be too many of them. We won't be able to give all of them a high standard of living. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's but, very interesting because you, you accept much of Robin's argument and yet you end up in my view, very notably different uh, in the end than, than he is. Okay. Um, so, l- let me ask you this then. Um, is it fair to say at the same time, after having said this, is it fair to say that you kind of fear the singularity? Because that's the kind of feeling I got after reading the book. I, I, I do fear it. I think 
if we go on Robin's approach, if, if we end up with an emulation economy, that's great. But I think, unfortunately, there's a very high chance we're going to have an intelligence explosion, mm-hmm. whereby the first time someone creates a machine that's as, as smart as a science, human scientist, that machine figures out how to raise its own intelligence and explodes into something as above us in intelligence as we are from chimpanzees or even ants. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, I think most likely the first superintelligence will extinguish the rest of our speed, extinguish everyone and do things that we don't care about. There's, for us to exist on Earth, there's a very, there's only a very small number of conditions consistent with us to exist on Earth. So if we create a superintelligence that's capable of rearranging all of the molecules on Earth, there's only a tiny set of arrangements that creates a world that we can survive in, a world that we would value. So, you know, a naive bet would be it probably will destroy us. Just, we don't know what goals it will have, but for most possible goals, if you look at the the space of all possible goals, for most of those goals, we don't exist. Also, if the laws of thermodynamics are correct, and they might not be, but, you know, if they are, there's a limited amount of free energy in in the universe. And so, a machine superintelligence allowing me to be alive for a few more minutes, that means it has less free energy, and it means it'll have a shorter lifespan. It'll mean it'll be we're a little bit worse at achieving whatever goals it cares about. So unless the machine superintelligence has friendliness towards me as a goal, it will be in its interest to kill me, and that's kind of scary. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So yeah, I've had a number of people on the show who have given us different chances of survival. So Michael Anisimov. I can't remember if he gave us 10 or 20 percent, but it was a very low percent, either 10 or 20 percent chances mm-hmm. of survival. George Dvorsky, the first interview I did with him, gave us about 2 percent. So whereabouts do you, do you stand on percentage? Uh, that's tough. I, I would say maybe one in three. That's excluding things like, you know, quantum immortality, you know, all, and universe being infinite kind of thing. 33 percent. Yeah, I, I just, but that's a rough guess. It's, it's hard. For me, the, the, the reason I'm the most pessimistic is Fermi's paradox, that the fact that we haven't encountered intelligent life means it's really difficult to create, you know, for star systems to give birth to civilizations that colonize the galaxy. And wh- what, why is that difficult? And one answer might be, well, you end up destroying yourself within a thousand years of discovering calculus. And if it's true that most civilizations destroy themselves around our level, then we're very common observers. Mm-hmm. In contrast, if it's, you know, almost no one ever gets to our level of development, but once they do, then they'll colonize the galaxy, then we're really rare. And in general, if you're uncertain of your position in the universe, it's better to assume you're common. And unfortunately, if we're common, that we're probably doomed. Because, you know, if things continue the way they are, we're going to be colonizing the universe fairly soon. Mm-hmm. George Worski made pretty much the same mm-hmm. ar- arguments from, stemming from the Fermi paradox and his conclusion was 2% chance of survival. Yeah. But in your view, is there anything that we can do today to tip sort of the scale in our own favor? Yeah, there is. I think I'm studying what it would take to create friendly AI. I think that should be the most important project of our, our species right now, is what does it mean to be friendly, to reduce this to mathematics, to have really solid proofs of what it would take for software to create an AI that would be friendly towards us. Mm-hmm. So you're a big fan of the Singularity Institute, that former Singularity Institute. What is it called now? Machine Intelligence Research Institute. Yeah, yeah no, I, I am a big fan. I dedicated my book to them. 
Yes, yes, so I, I, I saw Yeah, that. I think yeah. what they're doing is, is really important. Other projects are raising human intelligence. I mean, if we were smarter, we'd be better at figuring out how to create smart AI. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm a big fan of doing research into the genetics of intelligence. You know, I, I would I would like there to be super smart people who are working on the software. Mm-hmm. Uh, now I I've interviewed uh, Robin J uh, Robert J Sawyer, mm-hmm. uh, very well known science fiction writer who wrote a trilogy called WWW, Wake, Watch, and Wonder, mm-hmm. and it's about uh, a rising AI. And uh, he, on the other hand, is very optimistic um, about AI, and he puts a whole argument in, in his book. And just one of the reasons why he thinks uh, we have a good chance of peacefully coexisting with such an AI is the fact that that AI wouldn't have the sort of survival of the fittest evolutionary baggage that we do. Uh, that's true, but that's not necessarily good. I mean, there's a vast set of goals, and you're saying that it wouldn't have this one tiny possible set of goals that we do, but there's so many others. I mean, that's like kind of saying an animal isn't an elephant. That still leaves a lot out there. Yeah, and as I said, he makes a very, very sophisticated, very long argument, and he goes through many of the possibilities. Um, Just thought I'd raise the point so that perhaps you could look at it and and consider it. Um, I, I think I read his book two or three years ago now, so I, I don't really remember the whole argument. But, uh, going back to the economics of the singularity, let me ask you this. In my view, capitalism is just like any other economic system. You know, it, it's probably the best that we have, simply for a lack of a better alternative. But, in its own right, it's not a very good system, it seems to me, for a number of reasons. I mean, there's overconsumption, overproduction, it requires constant growth, which means that, you know, we exhaust the sort of um, the environment that we live in. And is it fair to say that if a, singular, a singularity happens, then chances are we are going to enter a different mode of production altogether, a different economic system, one that's not based on scarcity as uh, capitalism is, but perhaps one that's based on abundance, especially if we live in a digital world. Well, I'm not sure. I mean, I think we, we might get a, a, sing, a singleton arising out of a singularity in which it will dictate everything. Um, one way because it might want to kill everything, so there will only be one entity left. Um, but I, I, mean, say, I disagree with your premise. I would actually say capitalism is based upon freedom of contract, where what capitalism is is that we can make a deal, and if no one else is hurt by the deal, then the, the deal goes through. And I, I would say in capitalism, I would hope it, it would survive. I don't, I don't think it is. I don't think scarcity is the prime issue of capitalism. I, I think it's people entering into voluntary arrangements. Well, I, I agree with the voluntary uh, arrangement part of, of the issue. That's why, in terms of social policy, I'm a libertarian myself. But isn't it paradoxical that we would undergo such a fundamental change, and yet, you know, the economic mode wouldn't change, in your view, but it would remain the same? I, I find that paradoxical, because every time we've seen, say, when we moved 
when we experienced the industrial revolution, we moved from the agrarian economy, from feudalism basically into capitalism. Mm-hmm. Doesn't it make sense that the next time we, we have a, such a radical change again, we would switch from capitalism into whatever comes next? Um, I, mean, I guess there is, yeah, I mean, there is a good chance we and would yet change. you can keep that element that you just mm-hmm. mentioned, you know, the free contract between, you know, free individuals, mm-hmm. as long as it doesn't hurt a third party, right? I'm totally fine with that, but still, there's a, an awful lot of white space that, you know, can be very different from capitalism that fits that definition. Uh, I mean, I, I guess it's, you should, we shouldn't argue about definitions, but I, I would say if as long as there's freedom that it really that really is capitalism for me that's the essence of it but i do think yeah there probably will be enormous changes in everything if for no other reason that we'll have a lot smarter people playing at the game so it is likely that we'll have things that are very different i, I can't i don't know what that would be other than to predict that we'll all be dead which is you know definitely not <laughs> capitalism <laughs> yeah uh, okay so Let's see here. Is there anything else that we're missing in terms of the econ- in terms of the economic implications of the impending singularity? Uh, I think a, a big part of it is that uh, competition is going to f- force political systems to promote it, or at least to stop stop it from not happening. That you know, people talk about, "Gee, we're going to try to." If robots keep stealing more and more human jobs, governments will try to stop that from happening. But I don't think that's that's possible because if one country tries to restrict automation, it will just be left behind. Other countries will will embrace it. Yeah. And I, same I with, with intelligence enhancements. The same with eugenics. Yeah. I mean, I mean, some there's debate: should we allow parents to raise the IQ of their children through genetic manipulation? And the answer is, we're, we're going to have to. Because if we don't imagine the U.S. restricts eugenic technologies, but China promotes it, China subsidizes it. Well, gosh, I mean, you know, the average Chinese kid is a standard deviation smarter than the average American kid. I mean, that will destroy our economy, and it'll be so obvious that it'll be so bad that the political system. I don't think our political system would be stupid enough to allow it. So I think economic competition is forcing us towards a singularity, even if we don't want to go there. Mm-hmm. I tend to agree very much with you, but personally speaking, do you? Take any steps to enhance yourself cognitively or otherwise? Uh, yeah, I've actually been doing a huge amount. Um, I do something called neurofeedback, where I have these electrodes are hooked up to my head, and my EEG is being monitored, and then my brain gets rewarded for producing desired frequencies. So, for example, I I have um, too many what's called slow waves being produced right this part of my brain. And so that doesn't, I, I don't think as well because of that. And so I have a, a home trainer where I, I feel like, you know, maybe like an hour a week or so, I'll, I'll watch a screen and I'll hear a pleasant beep and see a part of a picture being filled in every time my brain is doing what it's supposed to, is producing fewer slow waves. And so this has sort of made me a clearer thinker. I'm also, um, I'm on a paleo diet. I think that helps. I sometimes take some cognitive enhancing um, drugs and I do exercise. So I'm mean, I do that game. I'm dual and back occasionally. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Can you tell us the name of that technology or the, the product that you're using for brain enhancement for the stimulation? Um, it's called neurofeedback. Neurofeedback. Yeah, it's actually becoming more popular. I, I think it's something that almost everyone should do. 
Very interesting. I haven't heard of that before. I have to, I have to do my homework on it. I'm, by the way, experimenting right now with the paleo diet myself. So I've been going through the different months, the last few months and did the vegan in January and then low fat. Now I'm doing paleo. So we'll try, we'll see. And, And I'm doing cholesterol tests every month to see how that's going to impact things. Uh, James, I have to say I really appreciate uh, this conversation with you today. And in closing, I want to ask you the last uh, two traditional questions that I always ask. First is, where can people find more about you and your work? Where can uh, they buy your book? Uh, sure. Um, well, I have a website, singularityrising.com. And my book is, of course, available on Amazon. And you can look up me on jamesdmiller.org. I have a, my resume is there and links to a lot of stuff I've done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I have to say, though, I enjoyed the book, um, and I really appreciate all the ideas that you mapped out, I think, very well. Uh, and I think it's worth reading, and, and I recommend it. But if there's a single message, perhaps, that you'd like to summarize, either from the book or in general, and you would like our viewers and listeners to take away from this conversation with you today, what would you like that to be? Sure. Well, we're probably going to be entering a much smarter world, and you should think how you can prepare yourself for it. If you're very young, you know, and you're mapping out your career, think, gee, how would I still have this career if machines are much better or much smarter at things than they are now? So one piece of it is, let's say you're thinking of learning Mandarin because you think Chinese is a language of the future. Mm -hmm. I argue that's a very bad career choice because we're almost certainly going to have translation programs that are extremely good in, you know, a decade from now. So that would be a, a bad career move. Think, think how you can survive and think how you can thrive in a world with very smart machines in a world where people are smarter than they are today. So give us a few ways. Uh, are, are tenured professors going <laughs> to be one way to survive in such a world? In uh, such a world? No, I am worried about that. Actually, I wrote an article for an education journal about how, you know, if you just get tenure, don't think you'll have a secure job for life because it's, you know, online technology might destroy the education market. So, yeah. you know, be prepared to switch jobs. Well, something else I should suggest, um, everyone, I would urge you, if you believe in the singularity, you should sign up for cryonics like I have. I'm a member of Alcor. Mm-hmm. You know, if the singularity brings a utopia in which you can live for millions of years, you really, really want to maximize your chance of making it towards then. So don't, don't risk dying before the singularity. So if you can afford it, you know, go sign up for cryonics just in case you're going to die you know, and miss out on this truly great universe that we could we could inherit. So your message is to basically do our best to prepare for the future. Yes. For a smart future where machines smart. would be taking over most of the jobs that we're yeah. doing today. Yes. And make sure you want to survive until then. And you want to you know be able to thrive and, you know, have a chance of earning a lot of money if that's the kind of thing you care about. Mm-hmm. Well, James Miller... Thank you very much for spending 45 minutes with us today. Well, thank you. I've enjoyed being on your program.